Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Right now, Donald Trump is continuing to test our legal system in unprecedented ways. After temporarily freezing a gag order against him, Judge Tanya Chekin just reinstated it, ruling the order should stay in effect while Trump's lawyers pursue an appeal. Why, you may ask? Well, even in the very short window when it was on hold, Donald Trump continued to attack people involved in the case. He took to Truth Social to send what prosecutors called a threatening message about his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, a message that Judge Chutkin wrote in her decision would, quote, almost certainly violate the order. To be clear, the SCAG order is not prohibiting Trump from talking about the case. The judge is simply saying he cannot lash out against witnesses and prosecutors. Doesn't sound that unreasonable to me. But of course, Trump can't seem to help himself. Case in point, just minutes after the gag order was reinstated, Trump attacked another likely witness in the case, his former attorney general, Bill Barr. Trump called him, among many other things, lazy and a loser. Trump was upset with Barr again, a likely witness in this case, that's what's important here, because of some critical comments Barr made about him in a recent interview. Well, he's already saying it's going to be about retribution, and he's, you know, he's a very petty man, and, it, and it's all about him. Um, and uh, he, he he's a very, has a very fragile ego, and you know, something happened to him as a kid, and I'm not going to spend time psychoanalyzing it, but you know, every encounter he has to come out showing the other guy that he's better. It's all about you know, the assertion of his ego. And uh, I think he will be self-indulgent uh, in a new administration and, uh, you know, won't be as effective as he could otherwise be. And probably uh, things would start moving toward chaos. I mean, that's a pretty blunt assessment there by his former attorney general, but also he's a potential witness. Mark Meadows, there's a list that just continues to going, doesn't stop there. So here's the thing. There are a lot of potential witnesses that Trump does not like. They may say things he doesn't like, which means he's likely going to keep targeting them, which means he's likely to violate this gag order again. We can also expect him to keep attacking prosecutors and judges in these cases. And as we consider possible restrictions on what Trump is allowed to say, it's worth pointing out that there are a lot of people out there who follow the words and actions of the former president and use them as a guide for their own lives and what they do. Just today, we learned that a man in Alabama was indicted for threatening District Attorney Fonnie Willis and a sheriff regarding the Georgia election case. We already know that Trump will keep lashing out. We already know why it is dangerous. The question is, what will be done about it? He's already been fined thousands of dollars in New York, and that has not changed his behavior. None of the consequences to date seem to have had any impact. So yes, it's fair to ask the question, could he actually be put in jail before his trial? Special Counsel Jack Smith has already pointed to a provision that allows for detention, and we will have to wait and see what Judge Chutkin does when Trump attacks these people and then attacks them again 
and again and again. And as we wait for further developments here on this, this back and forth over a gag order against a former president, we witnessed another first for the country today. The story of a trial in Denver to determine if the frontrunner for the Republican nomination can even appear on the ballot in Colorado. This trial stemmed from a lawsuit filed back in September, arguing that Trump is ineligible from holding office, citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says that no person can hold office if they engaged in an insurrection or rebellion after swearing under oath to support and defend the Constitution. It does sound a little familiar. And some constitutional experts argue this clause should bar Trump from becoming president again. But that view is not actually universal, and it remains to be seen what the courts decide. There are cases in other states as well. Now, like I said, all of these questions we're facing tonight are pretty unprecedented. Our country, our legal system has never had to consider the constitutionality of a gag order on a former president or whether or not he can be tossed off the ballot for engaging in an insurrection. We've never had a former president indicted four times or one who tried to overturn a free and fair election. We've never had a former president who threatens judges and the courts and tries to intimidate witnesses. So, yes, these are absolutely unprecedented actions by the courts, but it's not the courts that have changed. They're taking unprecedented steps because of the unprecedented actions of Donald Trump. It's important not to forget that. Joining me now is former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. There's so much to discuss here, and I, I think so many people are trying to really understand it. Let me just start with this gag order. Do you think, looking at this, Judge Chutkin reinstated the gag order after she uh, put a pause on it. It's still under appeal. Are you confident or do you feel comfortable with her legal justification for reinstating it? Yeah, I certainly think there's a, a basis for her concern. I think there's a basis for the order that she has, uh, in fact, put in place. My expectation would be that the appellate court will, in fact, uphold that which she has um, tried to restrain the former president from doing. It's a pretty limited order. Mm. Um, it does not say that you can't say anything. It says you can only say you can't say negative things about a relatively small universe of, of people. You can even comment on the case. Um, but... I think, as you said in, in Leiden, uh, I think he's likely to go beyond that, which um, even she says in that limited order. And we're going to have some ultimate questions that I think are going to have to be determined. Um, would a judge actually do that, which would happen to a normal person and yeah. put somebody in jail for violating uh, an, an order not to uh, a, a gag order? I, I suspect that's not likely to happen um, with this defendant, but any other defendant uh, would probably be facing— You don't think that she would put him in jail or that they would decide to put him in jail ultimately? I, I, I just don't think so. I mean, I, I think there are a number of things you— put monetary fines on him, as the judge did um, in New York, uh, perhaps restrict his ability to use truth social. Um, you know, I don't, a number of things. I try to be as creative as possible if I were the judge. But I'd be extremely reluctant to take um, a person who's a former president, the leading candidate um, of one of our major parties, and, and actually put him in jail. Because you'd be worried about the political consequences or the reaction in the country? Yeah, I mean, this is already a pretty divided nation. And to uh, do something like that, to take somebody off the campaign trail, uh, to put him in jail, uh, I, I just would be very reluctant, uh, really reluctant to do that. Now, it seems like the, the uh, Trump's lawyers are going to continue to appeal this. Mm -hmm. Would this ultimately, the gag order, could this ultimately end up at the Supreme Court, a decision in a, about whether or not a gag order against a former president is legal? 
It conceivably could. I mean, this is a federal case. The Supreme Court has ultimate jurisdiction over all, you know, federal matters. So it's possible that this gag order could go before the Supreme Court. I would think, again, though, that this is not the kind of thing that typically ends up before the Supreme Court. And I would think that it would probably, you'd probably resolve it at the appellate court level, at the, the mm. in front of the D.C. the D.C. Circuit. So what are the other options this judge has? This is kind of what everybody is wondering. None of these fines are working. Mm-hmm. Trump is not you know, he's continuing to attack people. We all expect him to continue to. If he's not, if she's not going to put him in jail or she shouldn't, what can they do? Well, I maybe increase the level of fines. Um, you know, I, I think the judge in New York started at maybe $5,000. Yeah. I think it's $25,000. Maybe you start imposing fines that even for a person who claims to be a billionaire will have, um, you know, some kind of some kind of impact. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of the, the fines that uh, that might be levied. You know, there is a uh, we also learned today of an Alabama man. I mentioned this as well, who was indicted for threatening Fulton County district attorney and and a sheriff regarding Trump's Georgia election case. I'm wondering, I mean, you have you've watched hate speech. You've watched the impact of Trump's rhetoric. How what is the connection? Do you see a connection there between the allowance of these type of threats, what Trump is doing out there publicly and these type of threats against uh, people like Fonnie Willis? Yeah, I, I think these these comments by the former president have to be viewed as attacks in two ways. One, on the system itself, and that has to be dealt with. But it also um, creates an environment in which the kinds of things you've just described, where threats are made against people involved in the case, um, are taken seriously by malcontents, nutcases, um, lone wolves, um, who might act upon the very things that, that he says. And so the concern that I have is not only for the system, but for the participants who are actually going to be attacked by um, by the former president. And that threat is real. I mean, with all the guns that we have out there mm-hmm. uh, in the environment that we now have, uh, I am I'm sure that there is adequate security for all of the people who are involved in these cases. But the fact is that security is actually needed. And that is a sad thing to say involving a legal matter, involving a former president. It means that you've got to have protection for the people who are simply trying to uphold the law and do the jobs that they were elected to do. It's quite a time. I mean, I, I think we, we talk a lot about how immoral, how dangerous all of these threats are that Donald Trump is making. Talk us through why this is such a problem in attacking potential witnesses in a case. I mean, if you were a prosecutor, if you were a judge, beyond obviously the violence, which is very important, what else are you worried about? Sure. You're worried about whether or not a witness is going to be intimidated and um, be reluctant to share uh, incriminating information against the former president out of fear that one of his followers is going to do something physical um, to that witness. You know, in, in mob cases, you know, one of which I tried when I was a public corruption prosecutor, you had to, we relocated people. You put people in the witness protection program. You did a whole variety of things to allay the fears that people have when they feel threatened. Uh, and that is not fundamentally different from, I think, some of the concerns that witnesses potentially could have um, in, in this case or these cases. There, there is a, also a case today in Colorado, I mentioned this, um, where the, the turning the, it's questioning whether turning the 14th, the 14th Amendment could be used essentially to kick Trump off the ballot. It's not the only state where there's a case like this. What do you make of that legal argument? Yeah, I, I think there are some legal questions there as to whether or not, um, you know, it applies to a, a president. Um, this question of, of, we've looked at the word of and how it's used, the word the and how it is used there. Uh, and then I also worry about, um, you know, taking him away from 
the ability to run for president, taking him off the ballot without the people uh, of the United States, taking a choice away from the people of the United States. And in the same way that I would be reluctant if I were a judge to put him in jail, I'm also reluctant to use this provision of, of the Constitution to take him out of the uh, out of the election. I, I think we should you know, let, let's have this election, um, let's have it a fair election, let's have it well run, and let the, uh, let the people decide. I'm actually pretty confident that, um, well, I, don't, I, I can actually guarantee that he will not win the popular vote. Um, mm-hmm. that I can, that'll guarantee. The question is, not, is whether or not he will win in the, uh, the electoral college. And, um, I, I, you know, that I think is going to be a lot closer, and I'm concerned about what the result would be there. But at the end of the day, I think that is the place to decide whether or not he should be the next president of the United States. As we all follow this, because there's different state cases, and I just was trying to understand what the impact could be. If a judge in Colorado, say, rules he should be kicked off, but a judge in Minnesota rules he shouldn't be, then that's conflicting, right? And that could go to the Supreme Court? Yeah, that would ultimately go to the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of what the Constitution says. And if you had conflicting rulings by judges in different states, I think that ultimately would have to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. I know you probably don't find yourself agreeing with Bill Barr often, I suspect. Um, But we did just listen to kind of what he had to say. And I'm wondering what you make of his comments about Trump's pledges for retribution and and the chaos that could cause. I mean, what scares you most about what he could do if he were in a position of naming a new attorney general, overseeing a Department of Justice? Yeah, I think that Attorney General Barr actually has it right there. And this is one of the few instances where I would agree with him, though I would ask him, you know, you knew this about this guy before Mm -hmm. you decided to be his attorney general. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously concerned about what he can do between now and the election. And were he to win the election, uh, I'm really concerned about what he would do to the rule of law, to our system of justice, uh, to the United States Department of Justice that is, you know, near and dear to me. There is nothing that I would put beyond uh, what Donald Trump would do in order to save himself, in order to ensure that um, his interests are protected and those who are his supporters are are protected. And you would, in essence, I think, you know, I think the former attorney general is also right. You would be getting not the second team, not the third team. You'd be getting the fourth team in a a new Trump administration. And so as bad as things might have been, you know, four years or so ago before, I suspect they would be even worse um, after starting in 2025. I have a lot more I want to ask you about, including threats on college campuses and anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. I'm hoping you can stick around or just have to take a very quick break. Okay, good. All right, great. We will be back uh, very quickly after a quick break uh, with General uh, Attorney General Eric Holder. So stay. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Ecucinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. Thus. 
As the war between Israel and Hamas rages in the Middle East, we are once again at a moment where it feels like the entire world is reaching a boiling point. A boiling point triggered by deep divisions, deep fear, and the most dangerous catalyst of all, hate. Take this horrifying scene that played out yesterday in the predominantly Muslim Russian Republic of Dagestan. Hundreds of people stormed the airport, searching for passengers arriving on a flight from Tel Aviv and chanting anti-Semitic slogans. Local officials say more than 20 people were injured. Here at home, we're seeing a rapidly growing number of chilling incidents that have intensified the very real fear and anxiety that so many Americans are feeling right now. We learned this afternoon that a man was arrested and now faces federal charges for making anti-Semitic threats against a sitting U.S. senator. This evening, Nevada Senator Jackie Rosen, who is Jewish, confirmed she was the target. According to the Justice Department, the suspect, seen here, made a series of calls threatening to assault, kidnap, and murder her. That's just one of so many incidents in just the last 72 hours that included threats against college students. At Cornell University, officials are now asking for the FBI's help after a series of messages threatening violence against the school's Jewish community. Again, that's only in the last 72 hours I'm talking about these threats. It would take almost the whole show to go through the alarming list of incidents over the last couple of weeks. The Anti-Defamation League says it has recorded 54 anti-Semitic incidents on campuses since October 7th, 43 of which could be directly linked to the war between Israel and Hamas. What is happening at our institutions of higher learning has become so alarming, the Biden administration is now stepping in. The Justice Department and Homeland Security are now partnering with campus law enforcement agencies to provide federal resources to schools and track hate-filled rhetoric online. Today also provided a stark reminder of the rising Islamophobia we're seeing all across the country. The 71-year-old man accused of fatally stabbing a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was arraigned on murder charges this morning and pleaded not guilty. The boy's mother, who was also attacked, says he confronted her about the war and her Muslim faith. So far this month, the Council on American-Islamic Relations says it has seen more than 800 complaints across the country. So that's where we are right now in this country. That's where we are. A war playing out on the other side of the world has unleashed a torrent of hate across this country we're all living in. Back with me is former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. These are such hard problems to solve, and I know so many people who are afraid. We see them. I'm sure you do as well. It's hard to imagine what's needed to to address this, but I want to ask you, what could be done broadly as the former Attorney General to help address this for Muslim Americans, for Jewish Americans, for people who are kind of living in fear right now? Well, I think we have to understand that hate lives in the body of this country and has for, you know, almost since we were, since we became a nation. Uh, I worked on um, anti-hate crime um, matters when I was U.S. attorney here in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. during the Clinton administration. We brought record numbers of of hate crime cases when I was the attorney general during the Obama uh, administration. And I think we need to denounce this wherever it is we see it. Um, but we also need to make sure that we hold people accountable mm. who engage in these kinds of activities. Meaning arrests of arrests, people who are making these prosecution, threats. put people in jail. Yeah. That person, assuming, we'll presume that person's innocent, but let's assume the person who uh, was alleged to have threatened Senator Rosen is found guilty. That person needs to go to jail. 
we have to be strong and say this is not what is acceptable in this country. We can have all kinds of spirited dialogue. This is a loud and boisterous nation. I think that's what makes us great. But when you move into the realm of hate, when you try to threaten people based on their ethnicity, their race, uh, their sexual orientation, that has to be met extremely forcefully. Now, the Justice Department has components that can help you know, people enter into dialogue, and that's, I think, a, a positive thing. But I don't think that we should ever forget that there are laws that say that these kinds of things are illegal, criminal laws, and those laws need to be enforced. You often hear, and I've heard people make this just an argument, that this is free speech. Um, this kind of even threatening rhetoric, rhetoric against others is free speech. Where does the law draw the line on that? Well, it's just, you know, like you can't yell, you know, fire in, yeah. in, a, in, a, crowded, um, in a crowded theater. When you make a, a specific threat against somebody, um, that is something that is cognizable under the federal criminal law or, or state criminal laws. Uh, you, you have to, these are fact-specific kinds of questions. But when you threaten somebody in particular, or when you threaten to do something against an organization, when you threaten them with, you know, bombing, the use of guns, a, a variety of things, uh, those things can be prosecuted. And they should be prosecuted. That's what I really want to emphasize. These are the kinds of cases that we simply can't say, oh, that's really bad, and we're going to denounce those people. No, hold these people accountable. Prosecute them. That's the way to disincentivize, it sounds like, from your long uh, law enforcement background. On college campuses, students, I mean, we've seen pictures, we've seen visuals, a lot of students afraid. They're scared. Uh, there have been threats. I mentioned Cornell University. What kind of resources is DOJ even in a position to provide? What, what can they do, actually, for these yeah, colleges? There are components within the Justice Department and within the, the Department of Homeland Security that are designed to get out and to, to talk to people, to uh, uh, try to encourage people to talk through differences that they have. Uh, there's a thing called the Community Relations Service within the Justice Department that does those kinds of things. It tries to lower the temperature um, where there are you know, incidents that mm. would tend to spark uh, violence or, you know, uh, uh, community disruptions. And so that part of the department, uh, I think, can be, those parts of, the, of those departments can be employed in these, uh, in these circumstances. I mentioned, the, of course, the threat, and you, you've mentioned how you think it's good that this guy should be put in, in jail. You know, this threat against a sitting U.S. senator, it, it feels a little, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but a little copycat, like he saw rhetoric out there, saw threatening language. How do you view kind of the combination of political violence and threatening rhetoric out there colliding right now with kind of a political division over, over a war overseas. How, do you, how concerned are you about those colliding issues? No, I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned that that which is happening outside our borders is going to have an impact within the United States. Um, as this invasion of, uh, of Gaza goes on, uh, I'm concerned about the, how people will view that and what that will mean in terms of how uh, Jewish folks are viewed in this nation, how people of the Islamic faith are viewed in this nation. Um, we have got to understand that um, we are a diverse, pluralistic society at our best. That is one of the strengths of this nation. And when we turn on each other on the basis of ethnicity, on the basis of race, um, that weakens who we are a as a nation. And we can't let that which exists in too many places around the world uh, affect us, infect us here in the, uh, in the United States. I know you've been spending a lot of your time traveling around the country, working to kind of defend and fight back against gerrymandered districts and states. Huge victory in Georgia. Yeah. Sounds like they're going to start redoing the maps later in November. How significant is that? It's extremely significant. I think, you know, the most important thing that 
um, is on the ballot this year is our democracy. We can talk about specific issues, but the question is, are we going to protect our democracy? And that's what we have been trying to do with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. And in unexpected places, you know, people, we filed suit in Georgia, and people think, you're filing a suit in Georgia? Yeah, and we won in Georgia. And a, a violation of the Voting Rights Act was found, and as a result, there's going to be, for the first time, uh, uh, an opportunity for African Americans in Georgia to elect a candidate of their choice, which has an impact um, in Georgia. We did the same thing in Alabama. We're going to see the same result, uh, I think, in Louisiana and in Florida as well. And so this fight for our democracy is something that really has animated my post-Department uh, of Justice life. You've had so many successes in places nobody thought you should be fighting these battles, which I think people have been shocked, pleased by. North Carolina is a state that is making people feel stressed right now. Yeah. What can happen there? Is there any further action that can be taken? Because it sounds like it, it could mean losing a couple of Democratic seats. Yeah, North Carolina was a, a very gerrymandered state. We brought a lawsuit, won the suit. The lines were redrawn. North Carolina's a 50-50 state. After our lawsuit, the congressional delegation looked like what? Seven Democrats, mm -hmm. seven Republicans. Uh, a Supreme Court election occurred. These new justices put in place a, a legal um, ruling that went against a prior Supreme Court ruling that was really only months old. On the basis of that, Republicans have now done an egregious gerrymander, a really egregious gerrymander in uh, North Carolina. And we're likely to see, instead of 7-7, seven, seven, maybe a 10-4 mm. um, split that is inconsistent with the desires of the people of, um, of North Carolina. And it's also one that will allow super majorities um, for at the state legislative level in uh, North Carolina. So we suspect that we're going to have to be back in North Carolina at some point with a lawsuit and other actions to try to make sure that uh, that which we cured the first time, we recure um, in a second effort. Attorney General Eric Holder, you've been reminding me during the break that the Virginia election hugely matters next Tuesday. Lots of stake in certain, including abortion rights. Thank you so much for joining right. me this evening. I really appreciate Everybody it. Everybody get out there and vote in Virginia. Absolutely. Coming up, Donald Trump and his adult children are set to testify in the former president's civil fraud trial. George Conway joins me to discuss what we're expecting them to say and why this case really is Trump's worst nightmare. We're back after a quick break. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 844 Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. So far, nothing has actually forced Donald Trump to show up for his civil fraud trial in New York. But over the past few weeks, he has voluntarily attended his trial a whole lot. 
glaring in the courtroom and ranting and raving about the New York attorney general and the judge in the hallway during breaks. That's basically what he's been up to. He's already been fined twice for violating a gag order that the judge imposed. And the reason he keeps showing up, the reason he keeps lashing out, is because this case hits at the heart of his entire public persona he's built over decades. This case has shattered the myth that Trump is some brilliant, successful New York billionaire and revealed what he really is. And that's a fraud. And he just can't stand it. In the coming days, Trump's three eldest children will be called to testify in this case, starting with Don Jr. on Wednesday, followed by Eric Trump on Thursday, with Trump himself set to take the stand a week from today. Ivanka Trump, originally scheduled to testify this Friday, will now take the stand two days after her father. Trump, John Jr., and Eric are all defendants in the case. Ivanka is no longer a defendant, but will be testifying as a witness called by New York Attorney General Letitia James. A lawyer in James's office has said that the prosecution will rest its case after Trump testifies. And remember, the judge has already found Trump and his adult sons liable for fraud. That's already been decided. So all that's left for him to decide is how much they have to pay. The other cases may very well land Donald Trump in jail, but in his mind, this one might be even more threatening. Joining me now is conservative attorney George Conway. So I just wanted to start with this big question. I mean, he clearly is ranting and raving and a little bit losing it, uh, losing his mind outside of the courtroom. Whatever he had left. (laughs) Well, his adult children are all going to testify over the next nine days. You've followed him a long time. I mean, you've watched him. How do you think this is all impacting him psychologically? Well, you can see it. You can see it in the clips. He's making mistakes. He's he's babbling incoherently even more than usual. This is really striking as, as your intro pointed out at the heart of his persona. I mean, this is who he was. He was the mogul. He was, he was the mogul with the apprentice. And he had, he, you know, he's been that in New York for, you know, 50 years. And now it's coming crashing down. He's already been found um, to have committed fraud that, that the mm-hmm. business, that his books and records, his statements of financial condition are false. And, and the judge has already ruled that there was no triable issue of fact on whether or not they were false. And as a result, uh, the judge said, ordered that uh, his, the Trump's and the Trump organization's ability to do business in the state of New York uh, should be invalidated. And that puts him out of business, which means he's going to have to liquidate everything, including places like Mar-a-Lago, which are owned by New York LLCs. Um, and that, they go through, but then the question of well, how much of the proceeds of those sales, when he go, has to be put out of business, um, go to the state of New York. And that's what this is about. And it tells you a lot. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, t- what tells you a lot here is the witness list. Who's calling these witnesses? Yes. The state is calling Eric, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Donald himself, which tells you something. They don't have a story. They don't have a story to explain the two sets of books that mm-hmm. Alan Weisselberg kept, the, the, where you're reporting one thing to uh, the tax authorities, reporting another thing to banks or for, you know, for, the, or for bragging purposes. And it, it's it, the, the documents, that, as the judge said in his opinion, It's a document case. And the documents, well, some of the documents had lies, but they don't lie about the fact that they show that it was all fake. All of it. So let's go just back to what could potentially happen here. Because when you just said Mar-a-Lago could be liquidated, I think people might be like, wait, what? Because isn't he rich? Um, So... What he's already been convicted of fraud here, but but what the, the total size of this? It sounds like your view, your belief is that he could have to sell a lot of his assets. Yeah. He doesn't have liquid well, funding to pay this. Right. He can't. In other words, he'd, he'd have to. He cannot operate a business in the state of New York if if Judge uh, Justice Angeron's 
decision so far stands. He's, 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 he will lose his certificate for, to the extent he has foreign corporations or foreign entities, um, I mean, meaning out-of-state entities, doing business in New York. Their, their right to do business in New York is canceled, as is the certificates of incorporation of the various LLCs and companies that he himself owns that are incorporated in New York. So he can't do business. And then, he, so the, the answer is that the result will be that everything's put into receivership and has to be sold. And, and it, obviously, the shareholders will get their money, except to the extent that this trial finds that some of the money should go to the state. So, it, it, you know, this is a very, very, this is a, this is a, this is a, Death blow huge, to, huge, to, to Trump's businesses. Huge, huge impact. Now, Trump is testifying uh, coming up in a week. Um, he could take the, he's pleaded, took the fifth nearly 450 t- times. Well, I think before. it was, yeah, it's 440. Yeah, 440. 440. 440. Yeah. Okay, it was, 440 uh, for 50. Eric was 500. Right? Okay, 440 yeah, right. for 50. We'll, we'll agree. <laughs> somewhere you know, in between there. And, and um, all in one day, which is pretty Which impressive. is quite a lot. That's yeah, a lot that's of pleading like, yeah. the fifth. Yeah. Now, he could take the fifth in this case as well, when he testifies, right? But in, th- in theory, he could, although he but did come back for a deposition. Be? The problem for him is that in a criminal case, the fact if a witness, witness does, a defendant doesn't have to testify against himself, that's what the Constitution guarantees, and you cannot infer guilt from a, a defendant's refusal to testify or his invocation of the Fifth Amendment. But in a civil case, if you assert the Fifth Amendment, the trier of fact, whether it be the judge, here it's the judge, or the jury, in a, in a jury case, can say, oh, he must have committed a crime. He thinks he did something wrong. And they can infer, and they have, the jury would be, if there were a jury, the jury would be instructed that they can make an adverse finding on the questions that were asked. So how did you, what was the basis for this, this financial statement? I take the fifth. And, and the jury would be entitled to conclude, or the justice, just judges, justice Engron is entitled to conclude, there was no basis. Mm-hmm. Sounds guilty if Sounds you take guilty, the fifth. Right. So as he's kind of watching his uh, children testify here, what is he on edge that, that he's worried about hearing over the next couple of days? I think he's going to be on edge of hearing them ad- admit that they didn't have a basis for things or saying that um, daddy told me to do it. That's what I would I, w- I would be worried about if I were him. But I don't know. I, I don't know what they're going to say. That's that's what. You know, that's what's interesting to watch. So this won't surprise you, I'm sure, but he's been fundraising off of... Of course. uh, He's been fundraising off of the 14th Amendment challenge to his candidacy in Colorado. He can't make it up sometimes. But there's really no consequences to that. I mean, should there be? Could there be? What do you mean consequences? I don't know. That he's fundraising off of these legal cases against him? Actually, I think there should have been consequences, and there may yet still be consequences for the fundraising he did during the... Um, interregnum <laughs> when he was, you know, when he was, he was claiming that the election was rigged and saying that they and trying to hold, hold mm-hmm. on to office. And he was saying he needed all this money to that he was raising all this money for legal challenges. Of course, it's hard to spend two hundred and fifty million dollars as what he raised in 2020 to early 2021 on legal fees. I mean, and and, and he didn't. And, and that, those fees have been used for those that, those those that money has been used for other purposes. So, I, you know, the question really is, 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 is what are they saying to the potential um, marks, I will call them, mm-hmm. who to send in their money. Are they lying to them? If so, that, that's, I think that's fraud. 
Well, it sounds like we have a lot to watch in this case. You don't even know what the children are going to say. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming in today. Really appreciate talking with you this evening. Coming up, an Israeli soldier who is being held hostage in Gaza is back with her family tonight after being freed during a ground operation. Former CIA Director John Brennan joins me to discuss what it means for the hundreds of hostages still being held captive. That's coming up next. Today, the Israeli Defense Forces announced that they have rescued one of their soldiers who had been taken hostage by Hamas. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that her rescue shows Israel's commitment to bringing all of the hostages home and that the ground operation is a key part of that strategy. The ground action actually creates the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility of getting our hostages uh, out because Hamas will not do it unless they're under pressure. They simply will not do it. They only do it under pressure. This creates pressure. So that's Prime Minister Netanyahu saying this ground offensive could lead to the freeing of these hostages, which often we've heard kind of the opposite. But there are reports that the head of Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, traveled to Qatar over the weekend to take part in the ongoing hostage negotiations. All of this raises the question of how quickly Israel can secure the release of more than 230 remaining hostages, whether by negotiation or additional rescue operations or other options, and whether they can do that in the amount of time that may be left. Joining me now is John Brennan. He's the former CIA director under President Barack Obama and a senior national security analyst for MSNBC. So, Director Brennan, I just wanted to start there. I mean, Prime Minister Netanyahu has now made this argument a couple of times over the last couple of days that this ongoing military operation is going to help put the pressure on to get hostages out. What do you make of that argument? Well, it certainly could as uh, Israeli ground forces move into Gaza and the release of this one Israeli soldier, I think, does give the hostage families some hope that the offensive operations might, in fact, lead to the release of their loved ones, because I'm sure the Israelis are acting upon any intelligence that they have had and will try to secure the release of those hostages early on in this offensive. But also, this was an Israeli soldier, so I'm sure that she has been trained to identify some of the weapons, uh, the communication gear, the tactics, maybe some of the code words that these hostage takers were using. And that's going to be a help as well. So, yes, this is uh, potentially going to put the hostages at risk of of being caught in some type of firefight between Israeli forces and Hamas militants, or even Hamas militants could follow through on their threats to execute them. But also, there is the possibility and the potential, hopefully, that there will be some more releases as a result of these Israeli ground operations. It's really interesting. They could use her because she would know what to listen for to try to add to their intelligence gathering on hostages, it sounds like you're saying. The the other path here, of course, is the diplomatic path, which can follow at the same time. Jake Sullivan told me yesterday that they don't want to have any um, any stoppage in that, that it's ongoing. According to NBC reporting, Hamas is demanding fuel deliveries into Gaza kind of in, re- in return for hostages. How do you think that plays out? There's obvious concerns about doing that. Well, I think the Israelis are going to continue with these negotiations going through the Qataris, and I know the United States is trying to help in that regard as well. And uh, I don't believe that the Israelis are in any mood to release any Hamas prisoners that they might have. But negotiating for some humanitarian support to the Palestinian people into Gaza for the release of some Israeli hostages, I do think that's a possibility. And I am confident that the Qataris are trying to find what is that balance between uh, 
providing something to Hamas, but not uh, being able to uh, reward them for holding these hostages. There are also hundreds of Americans stuck near the border of the Rafah crossing. We've talked about this before. They're unable to leave because Hamas, according to the U.S. administration, is blocking their departure. At what point do we consider them hostages in another way as well? Because they're stuck there. They can't leave. They're not, of course, being held under tunnels, but they can't depart the border. Well, they are restricted from leaving. And so these are American citizens that are unable to return home. And so I do think we have to think about them as being kept uh, uh, against their will. And yes, Hamas has been responsible for these horrific atrocities that started and triggered this conflict. Uh, at the same time, I think we have to work very closely with the Egyptians uh, to see whether or not there's a way to get these American citizens and other dual nationals across the Rafah crossing so that they can, in fact, escape what clearly is a very, very bad humanitarian situation, and also the conflict that continues to rage. And we have thousands upon thousands of innocents who've been killed uh, in Gaza as a result of the, the strikes that Israel has been carrying out. The New York Times published a lengthy piece today on Israel's intelligence failures leading up to the October 7th attack. I, I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, I wonder what Director Brennan thinks, and now I get to ask you about it. So there were things that stuck out to me, including the detail that they stopped listening to traffic on the handheld radios of Hamas militants a year ago, that Prime Minister Netanyahu had ignored or refused a number of intelligence briefing briefings. There's obviously lots of time to dive into this, and they've said they're going to do an investigation. But what stuck out to you in there? And was there anything that that was surprising. Well, I think it was the fact that they stopped and ceased these intelligence collection actions. Uh, they seem to have been focused more on what could possibly happen in the West Bank. And I do think that this was a policy directive on the part of Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, and the fact that they had assumed that Hamas was going to be content with some of these just you know, infrequent rocket attacks, as well as uh, having Gazans go across the border for work in Israel so they could bring back uh, money. Uh, and it was a bad assumption. And I do think that there is going to be accountability sort of across the board because it was a, it was a failure uh, to be able to maintain the vigilance that they needed, knowing that Hamas as a terrorist organization has this militant terrorist core that clearly was engaging in these preparations, uh, despite the fact that uh, Israel should have known. I think everybody feels that Israel should have known that Hamas is not an organization to be trusted. That terrorist core is something that's dedicated to the extinction, basically, of Israel. Is there any, they look pretty vulnerable right now to the outside world. And of course, they're dealing with attacks from Hezbollah. How do they rebuild their intelligence capacities in this moment? I mean, can they? They have a, they obviously have people on the ground now in Gaza. They're fighting a war there. But what else can they do to protect themselves from bad actors right now? Well, Israeli intelligence, both civilian intelligence and military intelligence, are among the best services in the world. And clearly, they let their guard down. But their professionalism, their capabilities, I think, are still strong. And so now what they're doing, I'm sure, is surging those collection capabilities in Gaza and north of Israel against Hezbollah, Iran, and others, so that they're not caught by surprise again. And so I do not believe that there's any, going to be any type of wholesale changes in Israeli intelligence while this war is raging. But probably afterward, there's going going to be a review that will result, I think, in some significant changes, including on the personnel front. But right now, I'm sure all Israeli intelligence professionals are doing everything they can to be able to gain insight into what might next happen uh, in terms of Israel's security. 
Former CIA Director John Brennan, thank you so much for joining me this evening. One quick note, one of the New York Times reporters who broke that story, which is really interesting and fascinating, it's a great read, about those Israeli intelligence failures, will join Alex Wagner in the next hour. Alex is going to talk to Mark Mazzetti in just a few minutes. But first, a little bit of news about something I've been working on when I'm not here at work. I'm very excited to tell you about it. That's coming up after a quick break. Before we go tonight, a little bit of news on a personal front. I wrote a book. It's called Say More, and it'll be out on May 7th of next year. This is not a salacious tell-all. I'm just going to let you all know. It's not exactly my style. But it is full of behind-the-scenes stories from the campaign trail, the White House, and the State Department about my time working with a number of people you all know well, from President Biden to President Obama to Secretary Kerry and even Rahm Emanuel. Don't forget about him. Some of the stories are funny. Some are serious. Some are even full of conflict about hard decisions that have been made in recent history. This is also the kind of book, as and as writing it, I was thinking a lot about this, that I wish I had at many times in my career, because it's not just about saying more with impact in public, and yes, don't worry, Peter Ducey is included in this book, but also how to listen and advocate for yourself, what to do when you make a mistake, what to do when you need to take a leap career-wise, uh, what to do, how to talk to different kinds of bosses, how to talk to your family, including little kids. And believe me, there's always humor and humility involved there with little kids, and yes, even presidents. As we get closer, I will share more details about plans for a book tour and more about the book. Uh, but for now, you can pre-order it wherever books are sold, and I certainly hope you do. That does it for me tonight. We will be back here next Sunday at noon Eastern. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.